Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. The idea of defunding the police is something everyone seems to be talking about these days. It's a scary idea for some people, and St. Louis does have a fair amount of crime. If you cut the police budget, does that mean there's no one left to protect us? Well, Richard Rosenfeld looks at the idea a bit differently. He's the Founders Professor of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and he's been studying policing here for years. And he says there's a way to explore defunding the police that could make a lot of sense, even in a city like St. Louis. And he joins us today to talk about it. So Richard Rosenfeld, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So when you hear the phrase defund the police, what do you take that to mean? Well, uh, I think what we've all learned is it means many different things, different things to different people. To me, what it means is to have a serious discussion and then implement policy that would reallocate certain functions that the police have traditionally carried out uh, to other uh, groups, other agencies. I'm thinking of things like routine traffic control, uh, uh, the presence of police at sporting events and other large events, assuming they ever come back. Right. Uh, um, uh, Responding to problems of the homeless. Uh, Those are all areas that we've traditionally assigned to the police and not without objection from uh, rank-and-file police officers who are often uh, heard to say, hey, we're not social workers. Mm -hmm. Indeed, they weren't trained as social workers, and it may be that uh, social workers or similar personnel could be better able to carry out some of those functions. So very briefly, that's what defunding means to me. It means reallocation, keeping in mind that we have to be very careful. Uh, Wherever and whenever the potential for violence exists, and some police officers are at risk for violence in in a traffic stop, Mm -hmm. Uh, I've heard um, proposals that uh, the police should not be intervening in domestic violence disturbances or domestic violence issues, but um, other agencies should. Well, you know, uh, those tend to be high-risk situations for the police. And if we were to assign those functions to another agency, that agency would have to be trained to respond to violence. Uh, and that that agency would, in effect, assume police powers. And all we'd be doing then is expanding police powers, not fundamentally reallocating or altering them. Mm -hmm. So this is a tough conversation, but it's one we very much need to have in St. Louis. When you think about policing, what do you think of as the essential functions? These are the things that we need to make sure our police are equipped and ready to do. We need to make sure that our police are equipped and ready to respond to serious crime. Uh, in, in the city of St. Louis, that means uh, violent crime, but also serious property crime. Though That is the core function of the police. Now, there are many ways the police can and should carry out that function, one of which is to stay continuously engaged with the communities at risk for violence. Engaged meaning stopping people on the street, asking them questions about problems in the area, knocking on people's doors in addition to the periodic meetings that police have with community groups. 
But those are the key functions that we have traditionally asked the police to carry out. And if we were asked another group to carry out those functions, that group would over time come to resemble the police. Mm -hmm. So those serious crimes, um, that has to be the police. But then you're talking about so many of these other tasks that we currently expect them to handle. Um, Say that we're talking about the situation involving somebody who's homeless. At this point, the police come, you know, they often end up charging them with a crime because it's the one way to help move them off the street. Um, Mm -hmm. What's a way that we could handle that differently? Is there an agency that would be ready to step in if the police decided this doesn't make sense for us to do? Well, I think uh, uh, there's probably no single agency that could carry out the entire task. There are several, more than several, multiple agencies that do uh, deal with problems uh, of the homeless, uh, and they could you know, they could, in fact, fill that function. Let me mention that one agency that's conspicuous by its absence from these discussions is the fire department. Hmm. The fire department, like the police department, claims a sizable share of the city budget. Uh, uh, The fire department has been enormously successful uh, in reducing the number of fires they have to respond to. And partly as a consequence, the fire department years ago expanded into uh, health, health services, emergency uh, uh, response to health problems, and so forth. I see no reason why fire department personnel, or at least some, at some, at some level could not in in routine traffic control, for example, Hmm. uh, or help to uh, monitor crowds at large events. Uh, So I would not keep the fire department sort of out of this discussion we're having about reallocating police functions. Indeed, maybe the first place I would go to ask is this additional organization capable of carrying out the function is the fire department. Do you believe currently the fire department is underutilized, that they might be able to take on some of these tasks without having to grow significantly themselves? Uh, I do. I do. Uh, Now, I'm not saying uh, that we're wasting taxpayer dollars in the fire department or anything like that. Sure. Uh, But the uh, firefighters just as police officers are, they are our first responders. Both groups are devoted to maintaining public safety and public welfare. We know the fire department is capable of expanding into areas beyond firefighting. We've seen that over the last couple of decades now because of their presence in uh, in health-related uh, activity. So that would be the first place I would go for to provide assistance to the police uh, in carrying out some of those functions that are, are less essential police functions. Hmm. Now, I thought it was interesting. The L.A. Times reports that a letter circulated among members of the Los Angeles Police Department last week, and this letter um, was people just very worried about this idea of defunding the police. Here's a quote from it. They succeeded in defunding the police. What do you think is next? Our pay, our benefits, our pensions. You're damn right. All those things are in jeopardy now. We have to send the city a clear message that we are not expendable. We are not going to take this crap anymore. And that was followed by an unusual number of officers who called in sick. Do you Mm -hmm. think the police would take, even if this is just stuff going to the fire department instead of to the police department, it's still within the public safety. Is that going to be taken as a shot across the bow? 
it would be taken as a shot across the bow if it were accompanied by a substantial pay reduction or a very large reduction in police personnel, which some versions of defunding the police, of course, would would advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I'm not one of those advocates. I think we need to streamline police functions so that police officers are able to uh, expend their time and energy on the core police functions that we discussed. And frankly, I don't think that means we reduce police officer salary. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, If we want to be more selective in the officers we hire, and I certainly think most police departments would love to be, then uh, if we want to select officers who are better better able to engage in the community, uh, who uh, are thoughtful about the the way they carry out police activity, we're going to have to pay officers more for that increased selectivity. So if anything, I think police officers, and I'm speaking specifically now about police in the city of St. Louis, need to have their pay increased. Hmm. But in order to get the pay increased, police The police departments have to do a better job of holding officers accountable when they violate uh, violate the law, violate uh, internal policy or procedure. But no, I'm not in favor of uh, the idea that we hear from some defunding advocates of reducing police pay. It seems to me that's exactly the wrong way to go. And I'll say, I don't think I've heard people say they want to reduce the individual salaries. What I'm Mm -hmm. hearing is that people feel like they're too big a part of the overall budget and that, um, you know, if we want to get social workers to handle some of these things, they might be better equipped to handle or say something like the fire department, that that means we put less money into policing and put more money into people better equipped to deal with that. You would push back on that idea as well, not just on the idea of of cutting individual salaries. Correct. No. So you're right. Uh, To the degree that other agencies, the fire department, social service agencies, what have you, are assuming functions ordinarily assigned to the police, that frees up police time to devote to the more essential police functions. That could result in a reduction of uh, the overall police budget. As long as that didn't impact police salaries, mm. uh, then I uh, uh, that's that's a discussion well worth having. Okay, so you're fine with that overall budget coming down. Um, you mentioned you'd like to free up time for police to focus on violent crime. Do you think that would help um, in terms of the arrest rates going up? They're, they're not as high as they used to be. Uh, I think it would. Uh, uh, you know, our ultimate goal is to reduce crime and improve justice, fairness and justice for the communities that the police serve. To the degree that the police have more time to investigate serious violent crimes, yes, I think that could result in not not simply more arrests, but arrests that are more likely to make it into the prosecution stage. As you know, many, many arrests, the the, uh, circuit attorney, Mm -hmm. uh, this isn't just in St. Louis, uh, declines to carry forward because typically because of uh, limited evidence. Mm-hmm. So I think it would improve the process of of 
of cases moving through the system. And yes, I think it would increase case clearance rates, arrest clearance rates. Hmm. Now, for the record, we talked to St. Louis Public Safety Director Jimmy Edwards about the idea of defunding the police two weeks ago. He said the St. Louis Police Department is already doing this, um, these kind of rethinking of the job, farming things out. He pointed to the Cops and Clinicians pilot program that pairs sworn officers with social workers, and the mayor is moving $800,000 from the workhouse budget to expand that program. Here's what he said. And that program uh, uh, placed uh, a social worker in a police car. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was fantastic because what it did was it allowed our officers to learn from the social workers with respect to situations like de-escalation involving uh, people that we would regularly see uh, with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. It allowed our police officers to learn from those social workers on how to address certain situations so that we don't have to take people to the hospital, so that we don't have to take people to jail. And that's Public Safety Director Jimmy Edwards. He told me he thinks the question should be less, how can we defund the police and more, how can we assist the police? But he also said St. Louis is ahead of the curve. We are doing exactly what folk are asking around the country on the subject of defunding the police. Would you agree with that? Do you think St. Louis City is ahead of the curve in terms of these ideas? Uh, I'm not certain it's ahead of the curve. Uh, I think the police department has made some good faith uh, efforts uh, um, but, you know, uh, to the degree that the emphasis is on assisting the police, that's all to the good, except that that will not reduce the number of police officers who have to engage in activities that I think most people would view as less essential police functions. Mm-hmm. So pairing police officers with social workers in a world of unlimited resources absolutely makes great sense. The question we have to confront is what are those functions the police now carry out that can be carried out by other agency personnel without police? I think that's, that's a, the key issue. That's a great way to state it. And if you're listening to my conversation, I'm talking here with Richard Rosenfeld of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Um, we're curious to hear your thoughts on this. Do you support changing law enforcement job description and, and farming some of these things out to other um, agencies instead? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll We'll be back shortly to continue this conversation and hopefully take a few calls as well. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. We're talking about defunding the police with Richard Rosenfeld. He's the Founders Professor of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Um, Richard, before I go to the phone lines here, it seems like some other places are maybe ahead of the curve, even if it's not quite true to say that about the city of St. Louis yet. Is there any city that you would point to in particular as, boy, I really like the ideas coming out of there? Uh, well, uh, yeah, it, these efforts that you're referring to in certain places, Portland, Portland, Oregon, I guess, would be my first choice of a place that's devoted uh, uh, quite a bit of time and attention to this reallocation issue and I think is moving forward in important ways. What I would say is this. 
as I mentioned earlier, reallocation is complex. It's not simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we should be seeing are experiments, and I mean real experiments, across the country, reallocating a single function uh, in a single part of the city or on the part of a single unit in the police department, evaluating the results and proceeding ahead in that fashion. We need to learn about this process. We also need to begin the process soon, so we have to learn in a very active way. So I'm hopeful that in Portland, in Minneapolis, where this process is moving forward, and elsewhere, including our own city of St. Louis, uh, officials are mindful of the necessity to evaluate the reallocation, see what works, see what isn't work, so they can draw back where needed and move ahead in that fashion. We should not proceed blindly. I think that's always a that's always a good thing. We should not proceed blindly. I love the idea of people diving into this though and and trying some of these ideas. I want to go to the phone lines. Um, Ron is calling from Ferguson. Um, Ron, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Yeah, I, w- I would say I, I like some of the professor's ideas because uh, when I hear the other crowd to talk about totally defunding the police, it sounds crazy when you got homicide rates going up rapidly in every city. Mm-hmm. And to me, the main focus should be homicide. People can mm-hmm. deal with almost anything else but the homicide uh, rate. So if I look at the number of African-Americans that suffer from homicides every year, probably about 13,000 versus about 60 that are killed by the, by, by unarmed people that are killed by the police. And so I think you need to do something about both. But no one really wants to talk about the real problem is we're talking about the symptoms and not the causes. And the causes of the high homicide rate, one is directly tied to the dropout rate. So if the dropout rate of African-American males in a city is 85% uh, of of the dropouts are 85%, the homicide rate among that same group is going to be about 85%. Um, And Ron, I I can't um, attest to those statistics, but I will say I think Ron has a great point that the homicide rate is often just a reflection of these much bigger problems, people who can't get jobs, people who feel this sense of hopelessness. Um, Richard, do you think giving the city more time to solve these crimes and deal with that can make a difference down the road on future crimes? It, It seems somewhat optimistic in light of the deep problems in this community. Uh, Well, I certainly agree with the caller's um, proposal uh, that we need to deal with the underlying conditions that give rise to high levels of lethal violence. Mm -hmm. And those conditions do include uh, a lack of education or lack of adequate education, concentrated poverty, high levels of joblessness. We need to move forward on all of those fronts. But doing so does not mean that we cannot also deal with crime, including serious violent crime, in the near future uh, immediately. And that's going to require an important role for the police. Uh, I want to thank Ron for that call. Let's go back to the phone lines. Um, Ray is calling from St. Louis. Um, Ray, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, thank you for joining us. What, What are you thinking about all this? Yeah, I am. I totally agree with Professor Rosenfeld uh, that funds should be more, more or less redirected uh, to help de-escalate uh, the possibility of more violent crimes perpetrated by police officers against the, the citizens whom they are supposed to be protecting. And it would help the police officers and their families, such as was suggested by the Marshall uh, Project, where it, it states that uh, funds should be helped to should go forward helping to screen police officers better so that we won't uh, necessarily hire 
police officers who have a higher risk of having uh, 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 post-traumatic stress syndrome coming out of the military. Mm-hmm. One out of five police officers are, are military, from military. Mm-hmm. And the suicide rate is astronomical amongst uh, uh, our, our veterans, which I, I totally support. But if they come out with those issues and they come, then they come onto the street. That's just that's just a bomb waiting to go off. Ray, uh, thank you for that. Um, and Richard, I heard you nodding along as, as Ray was saying that. Do you think at this point we're maybe hiring some people that we shouldn't be hiring? Well, we've got the problem of fewer applicants uh, and uh, departments need for additional officers. On the one hand, on the other hand, we're not paying enough to be as selective as the caller would like, and certainly I would like as well. Mm-hmm. By reallocating certain functions, that could free up funds to uh, pay officers more so that the St. Louis City Police Department could be more competitive with the county and other departments in selecting the kinds of officers that the caller and I would like to see on the police force. Hmm, so some fewer officers who are uh, significantly better paid is, is part of what you'd like to see. Right. Uh, although we do need additional officers, uh, I would hope all of the subsequent officers who are hired uh, hired to meet that higher standard uh, that I think is only going to come with more competitive pay. I'm going to go back to the phone lines. Um, Ken is calling from St. Louis. Um, Ken, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Well, thank you. Thank you for having my call. We recently had a case where a black couple took the TV back to Best Buy and when you look at the video, about 20 police officers showed up. A lot of times we're just over police. When the call goes in that there's a black male involved, you get about 10 police officers showing up, which lets me know that the police are not out there chasing criminals. Mm. Uh, you got to reform the police department. You got to cut their budget, use that money for economic development in those poor underserved communities, create jobs, create training. You know, we need plumbers, we need electricians, we need welders, we need pipe fitters. Why not use that money to train the people in the underserved community to create uh, thank you for that, Ken. I, I appreciate that point. Um, Ken's feeling some frustration there. Uh, Richard, I'm wondering how big a problem training is right now. Are we training police for the, the job that we're asking them to do? Not sufficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, think of police as a profession, as I think all of us would like to consider the police a genuine profession. In other professions, in medicine, in law, in science, uh, we count training in years. In policing, we count it in hours. And so we do need more additional training. That will require, however, reallocation that frees up funding to increase police pay and support the additional training. Now, Richard, we were we were talking about cities that have maybe done this right. You said you really like what's coming out of Portland. Um, mm-hmm. We hear a lot about Camden, New Jersey. Is that something mm-hmm. St. Louis should look at as a model? Uh, well, yes and no. Camden made good faith efforts to improve a highly dysfunctional police department. However, they did it by having the county take over hmm. the police department. I'm not in favor, I've heard this proposal before, I'm not in favor of an external entity taking over the St. Louis City Police Department. I, I have just, I can't think of any ways in which that would improve policing in the city, nor can I think of 
uh, practical or political ways in which that can be accomplished, unless we want the department to go back under uh, state supervision, and we wrestled for a century to uh, have an independent police department that at least in principle should be more beholden to local community interests. I'm not in favor of the Camden approach, which would have an, 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 another entity take over policing in the city of St. Louis. We need to improve policing in our city, in given our current police department, in the ways that we've been discussing. One of the other models I've heard a bit about is in Houston. Now, in 2010, that city created what it calls the Crisis Call Diversion Program. Mm-hmm. Um, this is apparently a revamped 911 system involving crisis counselors rather than patrol officers who respond to some of these mental health calls. What about something right. like that here? Excellent idea. I think that's an excellent idea. Again, I haven't seen good research out of Houston about uh, the effectiveness of that program, but assuming it is effective, it's quite. Uh, it would be quite central, I think, to a reallocation of certain functions to other personnel, freeing up police time to devote to serious crime. Um, one other thing that we've been hearing a lot about um, is in Memphis. They're doing this this new model of critical incident training. Do you know anything about that? Uh, not much. I've heard uh, the term, uh, and uh, it's not just Memphis uh, that is engaged in that. Um, and uh, that sort of training, especially insofar as it involves additional training uh, in de-escalation, uh, is all to the good. Um, One other thing I wanted to ask you about, because we do have another guest who's about to join us to talk about what's going on in Oakland. Have you been Mm. hearing good things about what's happening in Oakland? Very good things. Uh, Oakland and your guest, uh, I'm hopeful, will elaborate on this. Oakland now, some time ago, engaged in uh, uh, a ceasefire program that is called, you know, by people in my business, focused deterrence. Uh, and it and it does involve the police as well as other criminal justice agencies and community groups and social service groups, focusing on people at high risk for violence, uh, sending the message: we know who you are. We don't want you to be the next victim or the next offender. And here are supports and services that, if you choose to get out of the life, may help you pursue a different path. That approach seems to have worked well in Oakland. It's worked well in other places. The research suggests we should be doing much more of that in St. Louis. Well, we're going to go a little bit deeper on that Oakland example here in just a moment. But Richard, one last question for you. Um, We're hearing so many good ideas in some other cities that are making them work. What do you think it's going to take for St. Louis to get to a point where we're ready to actually try this, to not just put a social worker in the car with a, a patrol officer, but to let the social worker go do what a social worker should do? Uh, Well, it's going to take uh, uh, our political leaders to um, take the first and, and indeed probably the most important step, that is to commit to reallocation. Now, that doesn't mean that any given reallocation formula or proposal will end up um, uh, being implemented, but commit to means a full-scale effort. You know, I'm talking about the mayor, I'm talking about the Board of Alders, I'm talking about uh, uh, Jimmy Edwards, the police chief. I'd like to see all of them commit themselves to this idea and then sit down and do the hard work with community groups, social service agencies, not to exclude the fire department in figuring out who would be best to take on certain functions and how could we, can we 
immediately begin experimenting uh, with that reallocation. So if there are problems, we can draw back quickly, refine, and move forward. That's what we need right now. Well, and there's, there's a roadmap there. I hope the right people are listening and feel like running with us. So Richard Rosenfeld of the University of Missouri-St. Louis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And my next guest has covered some of these reforms in Oakland. She's here today to tell us about what she's seen. Abane Clayton is a reporter on the Guns and Lies in America project for the Guardian's U.S. West Coast Bureau, and she joins us. Um, Abane Clayton, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I understand Oakland has seen a big drop in crime in the last decade. How big are we talking? Yeah, well, I mean, alongside the, there's been a lot of research and stories about the overall kind of drop in violent crime. I mean, throughout the U.S. and Oakland um, certainly is not an exception to that. But specifically when it comes to um, gun homicides, Oakland has seen a really, um, what people are referring to as a really remarkable drop um, Hmm. in a, in one of the, in the pilot project for the Guns and Lies in America series that we're running, um, the first piece we explore how Oakland got um, a 44% um, gun homicide drop um, between the years 2007 and 2017. Um, And and we saw similar numbers in other parts of the region that have struggled with gun violence, Hmm. but um, Oakland really stood out because of its reputation for for violent crime specifically. Yeah, and St. Um, Louis would, would certainly welcome a 44% drop in gun-related homicides. Mm-hmm. That would be huge here. Um, I understand this yeah. Operation Ceasefire has been credited yeah. for being a big part of that. What is this, this Operation Ceasefire? Yeah, so um, Operation Ceasefire, um, specifically in Oakland, is a... Um, I, I want to call it kind of like a, a coalition and a partnership. It involves... Um, you know, different police officers as well as community service providers um, who provide things including like mental health care and um, treatments for people with PTSD, folks who have been involved in cycles of violence, gang interventionists and, um, and probation officers, and they're all working together under Operation Ceasefire to um, to do this kind of focused deterrence work that um, that Richard was talking about, where they specifically reach out to the very, very small percentage of um, Oakland residents and Bay Area residents um, who are the most likely to be perpetrators of, of gun violence or victims of gun violence. And they reach out to them directly and do um, various actions and various interactions. But one of the kind of hallmarks of Operation Ceasefire are these things called call-ins where a um, it'll be the, the young person, usually a young man will be brought into a space where there is a police officer. There's usually, you know, representatives from the interfaith community, pastors, rabbis, et cetera, um, and community service providers, people who work at youth development centers and folks who work with um, with hospital-based violence interventionists who all come together for this um, one person to tell them like, hey, you know, this, these actions are, um, are, are one, unacceptable and are putting the community at risk, but they really focus on um, how it's putting the individual at, at risk of, you know, 
um, death or incarceration and how they don't want to see that happen. They're mm-hmm. trying to save lives and bringing people in with that um, wanting to save and help at the, excuse the train whistle, <laughs> but I'm um, saving, you know, <laughs> wanting to save and help them at the forefront has been one of the most kind of unique ways that Operation Ceasefire works. It's not so much punitive, even though police are involved. Um, it's not like you come in here and it's a a setup and if you don't accept the help we're offering then you walk out in handcuffs that's not what's happening it's like i said more of a call into community a call into services and a call into to help um address the root issues of of the gun violence that um that we're still seeing even though it's gotten better Hmm. Um, is unfortunately still happening. Well, I got to say that train whistle—that's a—that's a very lovely sound. Um, and this this program—I okay. mean, Richmond is known for them. <laughs> known for those trains. I'm I'm jealous. That's just yes. it's such a, a nostalgic sound right there. And it does seem like that's such an important message. I know a lot of communities, including St. Louis, they they try to get that message across. They haven't always been successful. What do you think the key is that makes this work in Oakland? Well, I think one of the things is um, outside of the, or in addition to the the police who are involved, the other folks, the people with the interfaith communities and the, the community service providers, et cetera, are usually what we call credible messengers. They're mm. people who, um, even if the heads of the organizations are um, allies and not necessarily systems impacted or have been victims or perpetrators of gun violence, these organizations that are involved in Operation Ceasefire are usually staffed up with people who have been involved in in turf wars in like the 90s, who have been to prison for violent crimes, who have been shot before, who have gone through all of these things and are now a part of this really robust effort to, to stop the cycle, you know? Um, and I think that is what really helps. It's it's just having a level of trust. It's going in and seeing people who look like you, who you know aren't, um, you know, spinning a yarn, if you will, who aren't just mm-hmm. giving you lip service. It's people who can tell you from experience. And they're people that you see in the communities. It's folks who may be um, a family friend of your mother's, or maybe if your, you know, your father was shot and killed during a cycle of gun violence, they're your, you know, your father's friend or cousin who used to run the streets with them, and just having a person like that to talk to you and to call you in really does make all of the the difference. You know, when it's not just coming from a police officer or a well-meaning maybe um, white social worker, it mm-hmm. just it makes a world of difference. And that's been one of the things that has really distinguished a lot of the projects in Oakland. And and it's hard for me to just talk about Oakland because it's such a regional um, effort in the San Francisco Bay Area. But Oakland has really been um, one of the success stories that a lot that has gotten a lot of national attention and um, deservedly so because people are really putting in a lot of a lot of work. And that, uh, you know, it sounds a lot like this better family life that we have here in St. Louis, where they have people with that same credibility trying to intervene. They've done great work. But the problem in St. Louis is it's just hard to scale that up because it relies on just having such great people and them putting so much work into it when in St. Louis, they're they're not even getting paid from the city to do it. Is is that maybe the catch for this program is just the the personnel and, and the commitment they need to have? Yeah, sorry about that. Absolutely. I think that um, one of the things when I talk to people who do, in addition to Operation Ceasefire, there are so many of these kind of, um, or a good amount of these um, community-based violence intervention programs. And one thing I hear from their leadership often is that it's, the goal is to make this a viable career for the violence interventionist. It's very 
very hard work, you know, um, for gang interventionists, et cetera. It's just, um, Mm -hmm. it can be dangerous. It can be emotionally exhausting. Oftentimes people are being dispatched into a community right after a shooting, like literally in the minutes after a shooting there, the scene might not even be cleared and you're sending, um, you know, somebody into this in in the middle of the night. And it's um, emotionally incredibly taxing and can be quite dangerous. And these folks are not armed with anything, you know, they may, Mm -hmm. you know, not even um, pepper spray in so many cases, let alone some kind of like firearm or taser. So it is um, very heavy work. And the funding is a major, is a major piece, you know, if it's not a viable career and if it's all based on um, the, you know, sort of out of the goodness of people's hearts and wanting to volunteer and see their communities change, then it's just not going to scale up to the point that uh, maybe St. Louis can see a similar drop in these, um, in in gun homicides. And I think in Oakland, one of the things is a really um, dedicated um, Office of Violence Prevention and in, in this, and throughout the state of California, we have a, um, we have a really, um, a very serious, um, assembly woman named Buffy Wicks, who just advocates for getting millions of dollars for, we have a thing called CalVIP, which is a violence prevention fund through the state. And that money is is like specifically earmarked for these organizations to ensure that staff members have things, you know, can t- do things like take time off, you know, mm-hmm. it's like working a full-time job and then being a violence interventionist is just simply not sustainable. And and in Missouri, um, not to cut you off there, but I think that might well be the catch we're going to run up against here is we do not have a a state with that kind of um, that kind of perspective on solving all this. But um, it was it's great to hear what's going on in Oakland. And um, it's it's something we should definitely be taking a look at. And Abine Clayton of The Guardian, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.